Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got an extra special episode today. Our returning and much requested guests are Louie and Cuppy. Today's episode, we start by covering the macro landscape and then dive into some key themes Louie and Cuppy are focused on. We talk about emerging markets, the energy transition impact on commodities like oil and uranium, and stealth bull markets in places like Japan and India. We also touch on the MAG-7, Argentina, Turkey, and even aviation sub-assembly stocks. I think that's a first for the podcast. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Whether it's their monthly market wrap, top 10 visuals resource deck, or their quarterly economic summary, YCharts consistently arms advisors with the content and tools they need to turn their investment strategies into powerful discussions that truly resonate with clients. With Q1 behind us, YCharts will soon release their economic update visual deck covering topics ranging from market insights to interest rates, macroeconomic data, all packaged in a client-friendly PowerPoint deck that easily breaks down trends for more effective client and prospect meetings. See how YCharts can be your go-to resource for discussing the state of the markets. With templates and downloadable visuals, you can seamlessly incorporate into proposal reports or presentations to not only engage, but also to educate clients on their financial goals. Click on the link in the show notes to grab your copy of the visual deck and follow along when you register for YCharts Economic Update Q1 2024 webinar on May the 2nd. Don't forget, get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial and tell them Meb sent you new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Louie and Kepi. Today we got two good friends back on the show. Louie and Kepi, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having us. Great to catch up with, with both of you. We were just chatting on the intro. The three of us can uh, all turn our cameras around to see different seas. Tell the tell the listeners where we find each you guys today. Starting with Louie. I'm on Vancouver Island, and I'm looking at the Georgia Straits right now. And I'm in uh, Rincon, Puerto Rico, and I guess I'm looking at the Caribbean. If you guys don't follow Cuppy on Twitter, you should, and not for the J-Pal memes. Which, by the way, your most popular tweet from last year was something along the line of, hey, a-holes, uh, I'm going to keep raising rates until you guys stop trading monkey JPEG, JPEGs or something like that, uh, which was great. Did but you see that Bloomberg re reappropriated it and used it as one of their own pieces of content? Well, they're soulless at this point, you know, um, <laughs> not just traditional media just is willing to, you know, kind of cut and paste at this point, but that's great. At the very least, you can take pride in being copied. But what I'm saying is you don't follow Cuppy for his great memes. You follow him for his landscaping tips and all the work that you've been <laughs> doing on your property. So tell the listeners, you live in Puerto Rico on a little surf break called Rincon, but you've had quite the, the property development over the past couple of years. I've been there. It's beautiful on top of a hill, but uh, tell us a little bit about it. 
Uh, I live in a little town of about 15,000 people called Rincon. I love Puerto Rico. I go surfing. I went surfing this morning. It's, it's super pretty out here. And I recently bought some uh, land and I started a little farm. It's called Finca Cuppy. Right now we have three cows. Uh, they're keeping the weeds down. I've planted some fruit trees that all look dead. I'm running some irrigation lines out there and hopefully we can save them. <laughs> and then I mostly go and clear the brush all day, but it's tropical. So if you don't go every week, the brush is about as tall as me by the end of the week. But it's been an adventure. I'm learning. <laughs> I'm looking forward to Cuppy Farms starting out uh, to be able to, to buy some stuff on your marketplace. We might as well start talking about investing at some point. I figured we'd start with Louis because he's got a special way with words in a slightly different way. He wrote, you wrote a recent piece that hopefully will be out by the time this publishes. But you had a great line where you're talking about the Ottoman Empire, where they were on a branch and sawing off their own branch. And I thought that was such a good description. I feel like as a lead in, can you tell us what you mean by that? What is that? What are you talking about? Yeah, so, you know, the Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Empire in 1454. And that was a disaster for Western Europe. Because all of a sudden, basically, Western Europe was cut off from the spice route, the Silk Road. And if they wanted to buy anything fancy, they had to go through the Ottomans, who jacked up all the prices like crazy. But what that ended up doing, of course, is it created the incentive for Europeans to get on ship and try to find a new route. So Vasco da Gama went south and around Africa. Christopher Columbus went uh, west, eventually hit the Americas. And the Ottoman Empire, by basically trying to squeeze Europe, ended up making Europe the, the center of the universe for 400 years, 500 years. It ended up, of course, leading you know, to the capture of all the America's gold, to the slave trade, and eventually to industrialization in Europe. And the Ottoman Empire, by imposing these trade restrictions, in essence, wrote itself out of history. Um, now, the, the parallel I was drawing is fairly obvious today. We're, we're trying to block China's trade, and not only China's, but also Russia's. In so doing, we've basically thrown them into each other's arms. We've kind of officiated at Russia and China's wedding, which is, I think, a geopolitical mistake of epic proportions, because Russia produces everything China needs, and China produces everything Russia needs. And the, the genius of Kissinger and Nixon was to have split those two guys apart, and we've spent the past five years basically getting them back together. And, and that makes for a very different world. Now, I think we, we believe that we can do this because we've got tech supremacy. I think one open question, and that's another piece I sent you, Meb, uh, is whether we, we're going to maintain this tech supremacy when every year China produces more new engineers than there are engineers in the U.S. When China is now graduating 12 million graduates a year and you know, almost half are STEM. For us to believe that we're going to keep this tech supremacy, given this widening educational gap, you know, perhaps not over the next five years, but over the next 20 to 30, it seems short-sighted. Kapi, you talk a lot about geo, political, macro. Do you have any general thoughts on what Louis is talking about? Or are there other areas of the globe that are uh, on your brain today? Well, I'm not a China expert. I defer to Louis on that. But I agree completely that we've totally screwed up our, our geopolitical space. We put China and Russia together. It's one of the most harebrained things we've ever done. And China keeps running laps around us in everything we try to do. And honestly, we don't try to do much these days. Uh, 
you know, we've kind of surrendered uh, to the kids' table. I, I don't know what to even say or think about it, but you know, the Western world's just kind of a joke in very many ways, and you know, resting on you know past glory and past wealth as we consume that wealth. And you know, I think the future is kind of in the Eastern world, and we're on the wrong side of the Iron Wall. Suddenly, it's kind of scary. Well, I mean, part of this discussion is a topic that I think investors struggle with, which is currencies and the dollar. It looked like the past year or so we were at a major inflection point for the dollar, and then it's kind of jiggled a little bit. Do you guys have any general thoughts or opinions on, you know, kind of the, the prospects for the dollar? I'm trying to plan my travel for 2024, which is like the only way that people really think about currencies, I think, as Americans. The rest of the world is very currency forward, front-minded, but but U.S., I think it's it only comes up when you're looking at exchange rates for travel. What's y'all's perspective? Is this a long-running, stomping U.S. bull going to continue, or are we finally in a different regime? For me, there, there's two things that I've that are capturing my attention. The, the first is, you know, past, if you go back to the horrible events of October 7th, you know, Biden made a big speech affirming U.S. primacy. And in essence, he said, look, of course we can fight a war in Ukraine, and of course we can fight a war in the Middle East. We can do those at the same time, hell, with the United States. And the initial reaction of the bond market was to sell off, and the dollar was to sell off. It was almost as if the market was saying, yeah, sure, you can fight tours, but we'll tell you at what price. And, you know, since then, of course, bond yields have come back down and the dollar has rolled over. Now, so I'll, I'll park that aside, but I, I just want to highlight this. The second thing I want to highlight is that when you look at the FX markets today, we all look at it through the prism of the dollar, of course, because to your point, everybody around the world measures their currency against the dollar. You can walk into a cab in Jakarta and ask what the exchange rate to the dollar is, and they'll give it to you within a decimal. You know, everybody knows their exchange rate against the dollar. The real, though, if you think, look around the world and you think of what's the one price that's completely out of whack in the world, that's completely wrong. That, you know, two years ago, bond yields were completely out of whack. It was completely stupid how low bond yields were everywhere. Today, when you look around the world and you say, what price makes zero sense? It's not as much the dollar as it is the yen. You know, the yen at 150, you were saying, where do I go spend my holiday? Go to Japan, like go to Tokyo. You know, it used to be that when you went to dinner in Tokyo, you needed a second mortgage uh, just to pay for the dinner bill. Now you go to Tokyo, not only do you get the best food in the world, it's half the price of New York City, which in my life has never happened. You know, you get food that's three times as good for half the price. All of a sudden, it's to the point where you can't spend money in Japan if you tried. Now, you know, before you used to say that of Indonesia or, you know, Poland or wherever, Japan is, depending how you measure it, the second or third biggest industrial country in the world. To have a country, the, the importance of Japan, have such a cheap currency creates economic and financial market imbalances. And so, you know, for me, that as I look at 2024, that, to me, that's the single biggest question is, does the yen stay where it is? Let me just interrupt real quick, because I needed to stay this way at least through February for my annual ski trip. We go to Japan, and we've been doing this for many years. And I need to stop talking about it, because every powder magazine I open now, or even in the Wall Street Journal this past weekend, they're talking about skiing in Japan. So I need to be a little quieter, but we were looking at a lot of the prices. And like you mentioned, was actually having a debate with my wife because skiing 
and I grew up in Colorado and loved to ski, but it is so insanely expensive in the United States for lessons, for just gear, for, you know, the passes, everything. And we were having a conversation where I was like, you know, would it be cheaper for the entire family to fly to Japan to ski than it is to go to Colorado? And the answer was yes, and not even close. And so we're debating it. And it'd be more of an experience too. Yeah. Why is this persisting and how does it resolve? Because I was looking up my Ned Davis purchasing power parity in Japan of every country in the world currently had the biggest purchasing power parity. I mean, Turkey, I think, was like number two in Egypt. You know, like you usually don't see Japan in that sort of conversation. How does this resolve and why is it persisting? That's the single most important question, macro question, as we look at the, the current year is does it continue or not? So the reason it's there, of course, is the interest rate differential. It's the higher yields in the U.S., especially at the short end. So, you know, do you think that that gap at the short end continues or not? But there's another impact. It's going to be harder and harder, I think, for the yen to stay at 150 because Japan's trade surplus is now starting to improve meaningfully. So they're not starting to get proper inflows. There's always a sort of two-year gap between a currency devaluing and the impact on trade. Because, you know, most, most businesses hedge their currency risk for a year, two years, maybe three years. But also, if you're, I don't know, using a, a Korean-made part, but the Japanese-made part is, is now cheaper in your car, you know, it, it takes a while to retool, right? You're not like, oh, this month, this is cheaper, so I'm going to use Japan rather than Korea. No, you know, like supply chains take, take years to evolve. Uh, but once they evolve, then they stay there for, for, for a few years as well. So all this to say, economically, I don't think we've yet felt the impact of the 150 yen. Just to your point, you're just starting to see now people saying, oh, maybe I should go ski in Japan. Like nobody was doing it last year. This year, you're going to have a lot of people on your ski runs. And it won't be just Americans. It'll be Chinese. It'll be Europeans. All these things take a little while. But the coming year is where the impact starts to be felt on the Japanese economy, on the global economy. Now, a yen at 150 is profoundly deflationary for the rest of the world. If that changes, that moves back to being inflationary. We've had the deflationary hit. So imagine what inflation would have been like if the yen hadn't been at 150. Imagine now what it's going to be if we go from 150 back to 120 or 110 where it should be. Now, to the extent that the U.S. is in a bull market that, you know, max seven goes up every week, et cetera. You can say, well, the Japanese savers are going to take their money and plow it back into Microsoft. So as long as that goes on, then you're fine. If that stops, then all of a sudden you're like, well, why am I holding these stocks that are going down when I can own, I don't know, Hitachi or Komatsu at home and those stocks are doing great. Yeah, it's just like the the challenge of an entire generation that's kind of grown up with no Japanese equity returns. As that does potentially shift, you know, it could be, you know, we we certainly see a lot of Japanese stocks show up on our screens as being cash flowing and starting to change the governance as far as dividends and buybacks. I was laughing as you were talking about skiing last year because the night before we went skiing in Japan, our guide broke his femur. And we went over unguided, in which means you have to drive these tiny Japanese vans in like 10 feet of snow in Hokkaido on the left side of the road through a roundabout, which was a good exercise in trying to get around not speaking Japanese. But my favorite part of that story, and he's fine now, listeners, but we're going skiing with him again this year, was that uh, he was like 6'2", and they didn't have 
rods long enough in his size because everyone in Japan is shorter. So they had to fly in some rods from Tokyo to, to stitch him up. Anyway, listeners, if you want to do a meetup in, in Japan, let me know. Uh, it's been a while since we've done one. Cuppy, I don't think anyone's ever said this about you, but you've been so quiet. We've got to let you get in some words. I know you think about international investing a lot. We sat on a rooftop in Puerto Rico and and chatted about international and emerging investing last time we were hanging out. What looks interesting to you? I've read all your letters. I don't see you talking about Japan. I see you talking about some other far-fung places. Anything uh, front of mind for you today? As we said in the pre-show, I was just going to nod and agree with Louis most of the show. Oh, I've been mostly doing that. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, I probably should be paying attention to Japan. Uh, I actually thought it was funny. All sorts of little Pico Cap companies are always emailing me. Hey, Cuppy, look at this. Hey, you know, I want to have a call with you. But it's always like cannabis companies or junior mining or some pharma thing. I just never respond. And for the first time ever in my life, a Japanese company reached out this morning. So that's interesting because I always assume Japanese companies hate IR to the point of, you know, just not even responding to emails. The fact that they're doing like outbound, it just totally changed, you know, the, the whole narrative for 25 years in my head of Japanese companies. So maybe I should be looking more at Japan. I'll make a quick point on this. I think, you know, the you said one generation of no return. It's really been two, right? Because it's been 30 miserable years. And, you know, from that, I think indeed comes the, the impression that, look, you know, Japanese companies are terrible shareholder value creators. And, you know, they, they have so many things they care about, i.e. employment and their community and this and that rather than shareholder returns, all of which is, is, by the way, true. But I think all of that was also amplified by the fact that you were working in a deflationary environment and now you're not anymore. So, you know, managing a business when it's minus 2% deflation and managing a business when it's plus 3% inflation is night and day. It's really not the same thing. So today, you know, everybody's running around Japan and thinking, oh, these guys, you know, they're, they're doing a better job at creating value. They're doing a better job at, you know, maybe these guys finally get it now, etc. I'm personally sort of skeptical on that. I just think we've moved from minus two to plus three. And it's a whole lot easier to manage at plus three than at minus two. But they actually, the Japanese, and I, I hate to generalize, but I have friends that follow us a lot more closely than me. And it used to be the joke that the guy who was doing like nine basis points ROIC was the best performer in Japan. And he was just putting his money in like a money market account. And you know, he traded as a net net. And the, the core business was an okay business. And all the cash just kept piling up. And they never did dividends, never did buybacks. They just put it all out there at nine bips. And uh, now it seems they're starting to do dividends and buybacks and actually, you know, starting to allocate capital intelligently again. I know this is really, you know, a lot of generalizations, but I think that's uh, what, what kind of drives equity markets. You need people to think the stocks have a chance to go up and then people start buying them. And once they double or triple, then people start stampeding. And as you know, nothing helps more than that grandpa in Omaha you know, putting his stamp of approval on something. And so the fact that he at least is looking to the empire. Wasn't that a great trade? I mean, I see guys go out there and they go, I run a billion dollars now and I can't find anything that's cheap to do in value, blah, blah, blah. I run a billion, you know, they're crying. That guy runs what, a quarter trillion dollars and he put a few billion each into these Japanese companies that aren't particularly small. They're all triples and they're like three-year triples. It's incredible. He's what, 96? And he's probably wearing diapers. He's still running laps around most of the guys my age when it comes to allocating capital. It's incredible. It's just incredible. I, I, you know, props to him. He found the trade everyone was missing. As we move on from Japan, we could talk about it for a while. My, my favorite was the very first time we went to 
Hokkaido, we met a Japanese waitress who spoke flawless English, but she did so with an Australian accent, which was a little cognitively weird to handle. But uh, Cuppy, you've been talking about a totally different emerging market. It's hard to even call them emerging because sometimes they float into the frontier depending on what sort of crisis they're going through once a decade. But the equity market in Argentina, is that something, you know, they just had a pretty dramatic election outcome and with their head of the country. Talk to us a little about Argentina. Is that so interesting to you? Yeah, it's interesting. I wish I hadn't sold. I mean, Argentina has three rounds of elections. And uh, I, I bought some, uh, quite a lot actually, before the first round. And my guy, Malay, uh, did very well in the first round, which is kind of the primaries. And then he didn't do so well in the second round. And now I'm an inflection investor. And that means when the strength of the trend turns down, so second derivative down, you, you exit. And I exited it. It's, it's kind of a break even trade. I was up a little bit of money over a couple month holding period. I do this a lot, you know, I, I go in, I go out. And then uh, Malay did quite well in the third rounds and all the Argentine equities are up 50 to 75%. And everyone's super excited about him. I mean, I'm excited about him. Uh, it remains to be seen if he can actually accomplish anything because he doesn't control the Senate or Congress. But you know, he's a, seems like a very forceful guy and it comes down to if, if the, the Peronists want to just uh, you know, stonewall him for four years and light the country on fire so they have another chance to come back into power which is usually what socialists do, or they actually want to see the country go forward, in which case, you know, they work together and things go forward. I think it's going to be sort of a, a bit of both. And I worry that he doesn't have enough of a mandate, really. You know, he, you know, he, he won by 10 points, but that's not always enough to, you know, really govern, especially if we don't have the houses. But look, Argentina's hit absolute rock bottom. They're having an economic crisis. I think almost anything is incrementally positive. And no, I, th I think it could be really quite interesting there. I, I mean, I wish I had exposure. It's up a lot. I got the, the thesis right and didn't make any money. Yeah, well, that's better than the opposite, getting the thesis right and losing money. You know, you mentioned the word inflection point, and we haven't mentioned this word yet today, despite it being a topic that seems to be pretty quiet in my circles. Y'all run in a little slightly different circle, so maybe it's, it's a little more front of mind. Um, and I know my Aussie and Canadian listeners will perk up here. But gold is something that seems to be creeping on all-time highs in the U.S. dollar as we record this the end <laughs> of November. Yeah, so by the time this publishes, it'll probably be back down at 1,000. What do you guys think? Is this an environment that seems conducive? It seems like we're like waiting on Godot here. I feel like the Thanksgiving turkey, I'm so stuffed full of gold. Oh, okay. Well, talk to us about it. Is that a thesis you like? Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm a gold bug at heart. And gold's one of these products. It trends for a couple of years and it does nothing for a bunch of years. It trends again. And look, uh, 2000 is a magic number in US dollar. I don't know why it seems to pause at 2000. You know, you can go on the internet and find a billion conspiracy theories. And maybe they're right because all the other conspiracy theories came true this year. But, um, you know, maybe 2000 is just, you know, where the ceiling is. I don't know. But we're back through three, uh, 2000. I'm not much of a chart guy, but I know you don't have quadruple uh, tops. It's not really a thing. And I think we're going to start trending again. You know, uh, we're a country that's addicted to uh, fiscal deficits and money printing. I think we're going to have some sort of uh, multi-layered crisis. And I'd like to talk about this because, you know, Louis and I see, see things very similarly on the fiscal side. 
but it's going to be a monetary crisis and a fiscal crisis and a bunch of other crises with of confidence in all the various systems. And when you when you have a crisis of confidence, you, you buy some gold. You're expressing this through the miners, through the actual metal. Oh, uh, I'm playing a wild man. I own the GDXJ. <laughs> For listeners, that's the small cap miners. Yeah, and I own GDX, and I got some calls on them. I don't know. By the time this airs, I probably already lost all my money. But uh, look, uh, miners destroy capital for like nine years in a row, and then they all go up two, three times, and they go back to destroying capital again. But when gold is moving, and gold has one of those runs where gold goes a couple hundred dollars in a straight line, these things have huge beta to it. And it's just a trade. I, I, I wouldn't wish miners on anyone as a, you know equity portfolio position. But they do trend. I mean, I haven't seen it happen in a decade now, but they do trend. And I think it's a good trade. I think what's super interesting is that you know, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'm active in social media. I have a ton of friends in this industry. I talk to all the time. And my friends tend to lean, you know, gold buggy, I guess, for lack of a better word. And we're 30 bucks from an all-time high. And I haven't gotten an email yet all month. Hey, Cuppy, what are you doing in gold? Are you looking at gold? Go on Twitter. I just put two tweets out there just to test the water. No one even engaged with me. You know, if I tweet about uranium, I get a thousand likes in three minutes. Tweet something on gold and it's just a ghost town. And with $30 from an all-time high, that usually tells me that it's probably going to go. I mean, look at GLD, which I think is a indicative of portfolio managers in the, in the U.S. I mean, the, the units outstanding are down dramatically over the last two years. It's a straight line as they have redemptions. So what's driving gold? Well, it's China, Russia, India, every other country buying the gold. Off, off American investors. And when Americans come back into this market, I think it's going to stampede gold. It's interesting, actually. It's, it's, it's something uh, cultural. You know, I have Chinese friends, I have Indian friends, and when gold pulls back, they buy on the pullback. My American friends buy breakouts. I, I'd rather buy it cheap. That's just my mentality. But And that, that's kind of how my Indian friends think about it. But the Americans, you know, when, when it gets to 2100, they're going to be chasing. I was going to make that point in that if you look at where physical demand for gold is, you know, basically two thirds of global physical demand is the broader Indian subcontinent and China. And yes, they buy when it dips. They also buy when they're doing well. You know, it's if you've got spare money, you put it in gold, either because you don't trust your banking system or you don't trust your political system, whatever the reason. Like Americans don't buy physical gold, by and large. Like, you know, how many people do you know actually own physical gold coins? But in China, in India, if you're rich, you own physical gold. And the richer you get, the more you're going to buy. Now, to the extent that the, the Indian economy this year is powering along, it really is. You know, we've talked about the Japanese bull markets. If you look around the world, there's, there's been only a few bull markets with assets keep on making new highs. We talked Latin America, which is another bull market. Japan's a bull market. Obviously, Max 7 is a bull market. Everybody talks about that. Cuppy mentioned uranium. That's another bull market. These have been the 2023 bull markets, but India has been one of them. As India gets rich, they buy gold. So that's the first thing. As China gets richer, now, most of the Chinese economic data bottomed in the second quarter, and it looks like China's picking up again. So at the margin, that's marginally supportive for gold. So you've got already your big market for gold is doing better. Now, Two-thirds is there. Another 20% is the Middle East for physical gold. And this is where I think something very big has happened and nobody's even mentioned in the U.S. is that about 10 days ago, the Saudi Central Bank signed a swap agreement with the PBOC, with the Chinese Central Bank. Now, imagine you're a Saudi prince or you live in a world that's fully dollarized. You know, you sell your, you produce oil, you sell it for, for U.S. dollars, your currency is pegged to the dollar, etc. 
And then you see your central bank sign a swap deal with China. You think, why the hell are we doing this? You know, what's the bigger play here? Is the bigger play that we're going to depeg? Is the bigger play that we're going to move some of the pricing of oil in renminbi? Is the bigger play that we're going to move more into the Chinese camp away from the U.S. dollar, away from the U.S. camp? Unless you're MBS and you, MBS knows what the play is, but if you're, you know, Prince number 1,500, you're still very wealthy. You're just Prince number 1,500 with no real insight as to what the hell is going on. But you just saw this and you know it's big and you don't know what it means. The default mode is, I don't know what it means, but I'm going to buy gold. Because gold is making new highs in every single currency in the world except the U.S. dollar. And now it looks like the U.S. dollar is rolling over, so it's probably not going to be very long till gold makes new highs in U.S. dollars as well. So now you've got your three big markets. Your marginal prince in Saudi Arabia is probably buying gold. Your Indian guy is making tons of money right now because it's a roaring bull market, so he's buying gold. And then your Chinese guy is basically stopping losing money. So at least he's probably stopping selling gold to, to buy something else. So, so I, I like Cuppy, I think the, the, the environment has, has changed. I agree with you guys. The sentiment has been very quiet in my world. You know, sentiment often follows price. I feel like where, as we saw with all the buffoonery in 2021, people getting very excited about meme stocks and et cetera. But I was trying to see if the Costco, the only sentiment that I saw was the Costco gold bar, which was selling out, um, which I was, I had to finally buy a Costco membership. I've never had a membership at Costco in my life. And I bought one just to try to buy a gold bar in Costco and they're consistently sold out. So Listeners, if you bought a gold bar in Costco, let me know. I'd love to hear your story. That's an, an, a very interesting thing because how much gold did Costco really sell? I really don't think they sold that much. I think it was a great marketing ploy by them. It was. Yeah, well, they got me in as a member, damn it. I have no interest in being a Costco membership to buy 75 you know, packs of soda or something. They got you in. They got, I think, a lot of people in. It was a great marketing ploy. It was all over the news for two weeks. So it was free advertising everywhere. Great ploy. Very smart. This episode is brought to you by Cambria. Cambria's mission is to help investors preserve and grow their wealth with strategies spanning from global asset allocation to deep value and even tail risk hedging. To learn more, email us at the following address, info at cambriafunds.com. Or if you're a financial professional, check out the Contact Us page on our website, and reach out to your local representative today. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of capital. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All right, well, let's get even weirder. Now, while we're in sort of this metal world, I think, Cuppy, you mentioned you get more responses from one topic more than anything, and uranium. I don't know anyone that loves uranium more than you. So let's hear what's going on in this very, what many would consider to be esoteric part of the investing world. Well, I only do esoteric. Mainstream is hard. I leave that to other people. I like these third tier markets that no one's really paying attention to. And outside of a couple of assholes on Twitter, no one's following uh, the market, really, including a lot of the utilities that are asleep at the wheel and have no idea what's happening in their own market. Uranium is just a supply and demand story to me. We talk about the big picture and the why, but you know, the, the key fact is that next year the world is going to produce about 150 million pounds of this stuff. There's going to be about 10 million pounds of secondary production, so call it 160 total. And the demand's going to be 210. That's 50 million pounds. That's almost 25%. If we were drawing 25 million barrels a day of oil, like this is the only thing we would be talking about globally. But uranium is 15% of world electricity production. It's almost 20% of the United States electricity production. 
and you, you're drawing 25 million barrels a day equivalent. It's 25%. And uh, you can ask, uh, how has this been sustainable? And I'd say it's, it's not been sustainable. Uh, utilities have drawn down their inventory now. Since 2019, we've been in deficits. So you have four years of inventory drawdowns, and it's gotten to the breaking point. And the price is starting to move. What is the major driver of that? Is it utility demand? Is it something else? Well, utility demand is the story. There's uh, some investment demand on the side, and you know it's going to be very reflexive in a Soros sense, where as the price goes up, investors will uh, invest into uh, publicly traded trusts. Uh, there's one called Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, and there's another one called Yellow Cake. Uh, I own both of them. My fund owns both of them. Uh, there's a number of uh, hedge funds set up to invest in this. You, you know, if you, if you spend about six months of your life, you can get uh, regulatory approval to buy it inside of your hedge fund. And I know some hedge funds that have done that now. So, so you know, this could be reflexive flows as the price goes up. And I think that on the margin, that's going to you know, be additive to the price. But in the end, you have utilities. And it, in most commodities, you use a pound, you buy a pound. You use a pound, it's like your gas tank. You never let your gas tank hit zero. And you usually refill it at about 50%, 30% full because you don't want to ever go near zero. And with the utilities, it's not the same. The, the, the fuel cycle means you only buy fuel about once every three to five years. You buy a lot of fuel. And then you have to go through all the steps that lead up to fabrication of a fuel rod. And uh, these utilities just held off on uh, buying fuel. And they've ran down their uh, inventories. And now they're at the critical level. And all the utilities at the same time are panic buying. There's no pounds. There's nothing on the offer right now. The, the price has gone this year from 50 to 80. Uh, there's nothing on the offer. There's like 10 utilities with RFPs out there to the market, market being uh, basically two mining companies. And the two mining companies have already sold all their supply. And so I don't know where the pounds come from. I literally have no idea where the pounds come from. And I don't think the utilities know either because no one's responding to the RFPs. So, I mean, how do you have a one-sided market? It, it's, a, it's a bid-only market right now. How do you think about, uh, I'm not going to ask you about position sizing, but how do you think about this trade exiting? Like, are you a... A price target guy? Are you someone who just fundamentally reassesses as the story plays out? Give us the, like, you know, this is uranium ETF up 50% since the spring. How do you think about exiting or adding to this position as time goes on? Well, I don't think I could add. I'm already a little clunky. <laughs> but uh, look, it's, it's already done well for me. It's outperformed everything else in my book this year. It was started as a pretty damn big overweight. And I don't own the ETF. I, I just own the, the physical. Well, I own a little of the ETF, but I mostly own the physical. I like that a lot better than the miners. I really think about it this way. We're in deficit. We have a list of all the mines that are getting built right now. There's a bunch getting built. There's a bunch going through permitting. There's a lot of steps. But from the day that you get your permit, you got to raise capital. You got to do 19 steps along the way. It takes two to four years. That's even just an existing mine just turning it back on. Some of these take 10 years to build. And so we're tracking this, and I don't know how it's going to work. You know, you have between now and uh, December of 29, depending on how you model it, it's between 500 million and a billion pounds of deficit. Like, I don't know how this works. I mean, without the lights going out, honestly, because what we've learned with these RFPs that keep coming out, the Koreans just issued an RFP for a second time uh, this month, and no one responded to the first RFP because there's no pounds. They, th there is none. And I don't know how this is going to limp on for another you know, seven years like this with, with the deficits. And, you know, that deficit can go from a billion to 500, maybe to 300, depending on what mines come on line when. The, the mines aren't coming online. They're all having teething problems, the ones that are in startup. And, you know, the ones that were supposed to come online, they're not, they're not producing 
you know, to, to nameplate, like no one can get the pounds out of the ground as fast as they're needed. I think it's going to be a problem. You know, I think this game stonks. You know, when you think of the price of uranium, it's one or 2% of the, the price of running a nuclear power plant. It just doesn't really matter. Things like conversion, enrichment, fabrication, you know, just all the other, you know, HR, all the other aspects are far more important than the price of a U308. And I think if the price of U308 went up 20 times from here, it, it just wouldn't matter. You're talking about a couple pennies, uh, you know, a kilowatt. That just gets passed on to the rate, payer, rate payers or maybe the utility just eats it or the government subsidizes it. But you're going to have a chase for pounds because it's not clear if every power plant's going to be able to keep going, which is just based on the current supply-demand imbalance. And I haven't seen anything like this ever in my life. I mean, the only thing I can even think of like this is GameStop because there were more shares short than existed. And so, you know, you had this like odd uh, calculus equation you can't solve. And here you have more demand than exists in the world. It's, it's the same sort of thing, except for no one needs GameStop. And, you know, I, I sort of have sympathy for the guys who are short because it was idiotic what happened. But that was just, you know, a market structure thing. Here, people really need uh, uranium if you want to produce electricity. And like I said, it's 20% of the United States electricity. But it's also, you know, what, what drives aircraft carriers and submarines around here. And, you know, I, I think you're going to have a lot of uh, imperative to go find this uh, uranium. And I think the price is going to go up a lot to incentivize it. All right. So you're slightly bullish. Uh, Louis, is the uranium discussion coming up much in your uh, conversations with institutions around the world? Or does this tend to be a little more on the sideline topic? No, I think at first, as, as Cuppy mentioned, it's it's esoteric. It's not that big a market. There aren't that many instruments. Either you indeed have to buy the uranium ETF or you have to buy the miners. The miners, you know, are an imperfect play and, you know, haven't been the best stewards of capital over, over long periods of time. And the reason it's not in the conversation is it's not really a big part of anybody's benchmark, right? You know, if Microsoft goes outperforms the market by 20%. That's a really big deal for everybody because you're either long or not. But if uranium goes up 10 times, like nobody cares because it's not, it's not part of a benchmark. Like I'm, I'm talking the big, the big institutions. If you look around the world today and things that are making new highs, you know, things that are in a clear bull market tendency, I think there's five or six of them. That's one of them. But again, it's tiny, so people ignore it. There's India. That's tiny, so people can ignore it. There's Mexico or broader Latin America. That's tiny. People can ignore it. There's Japan. Now, Japan, people have been able to ignore it because even though it's making new eyes, the yen's been weak. So all in all, it's like uh, people have, I think, by and large ignored it. But I think that one they won't be able to ignore for very much longer because it is a part of the, the world MSCI. You know, it is significant. And then there's, of course, the Max 7 or the Cult 7. And everybody looks at that because that's, that's like, you know, whatever it is now, 28% of the S&P or and so that one you can't afford to, to ignore. So everybody just focuses on this one at the detriment of all these other bull markets, bull markets that are less crowded, not overvalued, have terrific fundamentals, et cetera. Everybody focuses on the one that's where everybody is, expensive, and you know, which leaves lots of opportunities elsewhere. Returning to what Louis says about expensive, I mean, look, uranium's $80 a pound. I think if you want to run uh, your mine, that's the break-even cost. If you want to produce 210 million pounds and the 225 million they need next year, that's about the break-even price. You're not earning a profit doing it. So how do you even call the, the physical price expensive for here? You have to have a profit incentive. And I, I just think, you know, it's still in the low-risk uh, part of the cycle, even though 
we're two years into the bull market and the price has almost tripled. I don't want to add water to Cuppy's mill, but uh, you know, if you look at where there is uranium, you know, one place, of course, is Kazakhstan. Who wants to do capital spending there? One place is the Sahel in Africa, where there's a coup every third week. Nine million pounds are offline in Niger. They just had a coup. By the way, that's in my uh, 160. So if they don't turn back on by January, like like we're drawing already from my 160. And then you know Namibia is having water issues, so they're they haven't hit their targets for two months in a row. Kazakhstan they mixed uh, the, the window before the ground freezes to do their sulfuric acid injections this year because you know the supply chain issues, so they're definitely going to miss their targets next year. So you start looking at this, and it's just like infrastructure, supply chain, politics, it's all these problems. The only place conceptually where people would feel comfortable adding mines and getting it out of the ground would, would, would be Canada. But here the problem is good luck finding workers because Canada, like, like the U.S., you know, you want to find workers to you know, type on a computer in Vancouver that you can find. You want, to, you want to find guys who go up to northern Alberta, northern Ontario in the winter, you know, good luck. You're not going to find them. As we talk about all these ideas that no one's paying attention to or paying attention to, I mean, I think one of the most discussed topics in my world, particularly on the end investor side, has just been this elation with T-bills having a yield again. And a lot of people, you know, the phrase of the year being T-bills and chill and just chilling out in 5% yields. But is there any other areas that we haven't talked about thus far that you guys think either are really interesting investing investors are ignoring. Cuppy hasn't even mentioned oil, which like on my bingo card, we should have had like, you know, at what point will we all say one of these words? And Cuppy not saying oil 45 minutes in, I think is... Uh, oh, I'm just so excited about uranium. Uh, we, we can talk about oil. I mean, I don't want to lead it with oil, but just like what in general is on y'all's mind or what are people asking about? I do bull markets. I, I do... Uh, Industries that have been starved of capital for long periods of time that have destroyed everyone's hopes and dreams, and everyone just stopped looking because it's been so miserable and sad and depressing. But I tend to look at you know decently good quality businesses. You know, look, aerospace has been terrible. You had the issue with the Max plane, where the planes were falling out of the sky because they programmed it wrong. Then COVID came and no one wanted aircraft. I mean, it's been an eight-year bear market in aviation, but you know. And I think it's a crazy statistic, but Southwest Airlines, which is like a second tier airline in the United States, between what they own and what they control, they have more aircraft than entire India with over a billion people. Just think about that. Southwest Airlines, a smallish airline in America, they control more aircraft than all of India. And then you look at Boeing and Airbus and you see what their backlog looks like. And it's all India, China, Indonesia, Philippines, like this Africa, like this is where it's all coming from. Middle East, they, they just keep reordering and reordering, you know, Turkey. And just look at the backlog. You have a 10-year bull market and Boeing and Airbus, they have bottlenecks. They can't figure out how to produce what they plan to produce. They each say, we're going to produce X many planes. We're producing 40% of that right now. And every month they want to get one more plane done and eventually ramp up to 70 a month. You know, 70 of this model, 50 of that model, whatever. And they're slowly ramping up. And as they ramp up, all everything in the supply chain is seeing huge growth in demand for all the components. You know, Boeing and Airbus, they just final assembly. And these factories have really had no business for years and years. And suddenly the, the business, the backlog, I mean, these companies have three and four times the backlog they would have had in 2019. It's incredible what's happening. 
And yeah, you know, they're earning no margin right now because it's really hard to ramp up an industrial business in America. But I think they'll figure this out. And volume usually drives margin. And if not, they'll, you know, get some concessions from Boeing and get more margin. I mean, we own a bunch of these things. They're, they're great. And I just think uh, there's, there's a huge bull market as Boeing ramps up to whatever the target number is. And like I said, I love bull markets that are reasonably good businesses. And for a lot of these aircraft, there's really only one sole supplier. Aviation subassembly has definitely been the first time that's been uttered on this podcast, probably not certainly just this year, probably ever. Mev, I think that the thing that makes this far more interesting is that we just gave all our spare toys to Zelensky. And suddenly the uh, U.S. military is outbidding Boeing and Airbus for new equipment. And suddenly it's a price war. Whereas before Boeing and Airbus kind of collegially worked together, the U.S. military is just outbidding everyone. And suddenly I think these guys are going to get huge margin next year. And you see it in the backlog and they have to basically eat through the backlog because you book backlog for 2025 now. So you have to eat through 23 and 24 and then margin. And I don't know, I just, I, I love this trade. I, I love bull markets that no one's paying attention to because you can buy into them at one, two, three times cash flow, 25 cash flow, you know, 2025. One, two, three times cash flow is always a nice multiple. You don't see that um, when you're talking about the Magnificent Seven. Louis, what else is on your brain as we wind down 2023? What are you thinking about? What are you worried about? You know, these two big conflicts. It seems like the discussion around Taiwan has receded a bit, maybe not in your world. What are you marinating on as we get to year end? I don't like being worried. I'm, you know, it's, I, I like being hopeful. I'd like to make a couple points that I think there's misconceptions that perhaps predate COVID. I think when people look at Asia from the United States, they they bring two conceptions with them that are wrong. The first conception is that China exports cheap stuff. And the other conception, misconception is that India can't build infrastructure. Now, I just thought of this because I was listening to Cuppy just now about airports, etc. You know, in the, in the past five years, India has opened 17 new airports and they're going to open another 17 in the next five that uh, they're, they're in construction right now. You know, you go to India. I hadn't been to India. I went to India this summer. Spent a couple of weeks there. I hadn't been there since pre-COVID. You now have motorways. You have world-class airports, much better than airports that you, uh, that, you that you have in North America at this stage. Yeah, can we get them to take over LAX in Los Angeles? My God, what a dump! <laughs> and so. I highlight this, you know, as, as Cuppy's talking about the lack of planes, et cetera. If you've just built 17 new airports and you're building another 70, you know, you're going to need planes to fly to, in between these airports. And now that brings me to the next point is in the past, all these airports would have been built using caterpillars, using, you know, Western, either U.S. or European machinery, tools, et cetera. And the planes for now are still going to be Airbus and Boeing's, but in 10 years time, it's not given that it will be Airbus and Boeing. And in the meantime, you are moving from Caterpillar to long-haul machinery. You know, China's trade surplus has gone from $30 billion a month five years ago to $80 billion a month. And it's not because all three of us have decided to buy three times as many pairs of underwear and three times as many pairs of socks. The reason it's gone from $30 billion to $80 billion is China's now exporting cars, earth-moving equipment, telecom switches, trains, turbines. China right now is negotiating with Saudi Arabia to sell nuclear plants to Saudi Arabia. Now, as a Frenchman, I'm like, how are we losing this business? This is French business. This is like the kind of stuff like we do. But China's going to get this business because, of course, it's doing it cheaper than, than the French. Now, I highlight all this because, you know, 
this is super hopeful for the whole world. China today, if you're Indonesia, if you're Vietnam, if you're Saudi Arabia, China is allowing you to industrialize on the cheap. It's allowing you to industrialize on credit. It's allowing you to industrialize in a currency other than the US dollar. It might be in your local currency. It might be in renminbi. And putting at the back end the pipes to make this necessary. So China says to Saudi Arabia, look, let's do a deal on these uh, nuclear power plants. Let's do it in renminbi. And I'll give you a swap line to make sure that you can always have renminbi to pay me. This makes for a world that is much more stable, where trade doesn't depend on all of a sudden JP Morgan waking up one morning and saying, I'm not going to fund Indonesia. I'm not going to fund Saudi Arabia for whatever reason. You know, on, on China, are you generally positive on the equity markets? And the reason I ask that is, you know, there's probably been as far as valuation, no bigger basket case in the markets than, you know, China over the past 20 years has been. Oh, Japan. But the full spectrum of like, you know, boom, bust, boom, bust. And arguably, if you look at the long term P.E. ratios, China's at or below kind of the lowest valuation, you know, we've seen, if not ever in a very long time. Are you generally constructive on Chinese equities or how are you feeling? I think the biggest misconception of foreign investors when they look at China has been to look at it through the prism of, of equities. And here, you know, we're all the fruits of our own experience. But when I started in this business, my very first client, a gentleman called Biat Knotts in Nutchtuki in Geneva, told me, Louis, remember that when you don't know what to do, when it's panic in the markets, when it's mayhem, you have to buy equities in the US because the Fed will always manage policy for the equity market, and you buy bonds in Germany, so I'm showing my age, but you buy bonds in Germany because the Bundesbank, so the Bundesbank still existed, will always manage the economy for the bondholder because all the Americans own stock and all the Germans own bonds. So deep down, if you don't know what to do, you just do that and you'll be fine. And by the way, if I'd followed that advice, I would have probably done better. But you know, most Americans look at China, think, oh, China's growing, I buy Chinese stocks. The reality, to your point, is Chinese stocks have massively underperformed U.S. stocks. If you bought Chinese bonds, you've absolutely crushed U.S. treasuries. Chinese bonds have been the new boons. The PBOC is the new Bundesbank. Why? Because the primary goal of Chinese policymakers has been to internationalize the renminbi, to make it a credible currency. And for that, you need a credible bond market that delivers steady, positive, absolute returns. So we are now in the phase of the cycle where the Fed has done everything it could to goose up the equity market and done it successfully. And, you know, and if that meant that treasury holders got smoked, then so be it. The next thing that will happen is, I think, U.S. dollar holders will get smoked because the equities will need to, to be saved. And so this, the U.S. dollar will end up being sacrificed. But in China, what matters more in the order, in the pegging order, is first currency, then bonds, then equities. The equities are the variable of adjustment. So we are now at the stage where, yes, you know, equities are cheap. Yes, all the economic data, X real estate, shows that the economy bottomed in the second quarter and is picking up. Yes, the government wants the equity market to come up. So I think it's, it's a dangerous short. But long term, again, you, if you want to buy something long term in China, you buy the bonds. If I was to guess, of all the people listening to the show, how many own Chinese bonds I'm guessing the answer would be, it would round to zero. There are two Chinese bond ETFs. One has 3 million. The other has 33 million in it. And, you know, foreign bonds are largely one of the, if not the largest asset class in the world. It's pretty darn close. And astonishing 
China is the second biggest bond market in the world. Second biggest bond market in the world. And nobody owns it. Nobody owns it. I bang my head against the wall almost every day on Twitter talking about international investing. I was going crazy today because I was getting into it with an institutional investor who says, you know, international investing hasn't worked over the past, you know, lifetime. And I go, Let, let's be clear. International investing has worked great. What you mean by what you're saying is international investing for Americans, but international investing for the other 44 countries around the world that are investable has worked fantastic. So you have a sample size of one out of 45. That's an odd statement, but you know, so. I would say one, one for, I remember so well in 2000, a piece, I think I'm pretty, almost 99% sure it was published by Merrill Lynch. Basically a big, it was a huge report saying like, look, international diversification makes no sense. You need to be 100% in the US. And this was in 2000. And then for the next 10 years, 2000, 2010, US basically underperformed everybody. I want to be clear today, I look at Chinese bonds, you know, yields have, have come down a lot. They've delivered uh, terrific returns. They've crushed US treasuries on a one year, three year, five year, 10 year view, et cetera. I think if you put money in bonds today, you're much better off owning Latin American debt than either U.S. treasuries or Chinese bonds. You know, you're getting real rates. Today, you can buy Brazilian tips offering you 6% real. What else do you need? You can buy Pemex debt, and Cuppy and I have talked about this before, but you buy two-year Pemex debt, you swap it back into peso, it gives you a 16% yield. Like, unless oil goes to 20 bucks and Mexico goes bankrupt, you know, this seems like a fairly... And by the way, I don't think oil is going to 20 bucks, just to be very clear. We're going to have to title this episode, uh, Is It Time to Buy Brazilian Tips? Which uh, we did a fun poll on Twitter where we said, at what real yield would you sell stocks and buy tips? This is in the US. And, you know, they're at whatever, 2.3 .3 now, et cetera. I said 3% real, 5% or, or tips yield, 3%, 5%, 7%, never you know, and the vast majority of people are like never or seven. So forget the fact that none of those yields have ever been hit, you know, right? These are levels. Of course you do it all day, every day. <laughs> right. Uh, at five, I think. At this point, I feel like people are just trolling me in my Twitter polls and, and answering like things that they know will set me off. Cuppy's quiet again. So, you know, one of the goals in the beginning of this podcast, we said we have to challenge ourselves and find something that at least the two of you disagree with, maybe all three of us. So as you think about one of our favorite questions, which we've asked you guys before, but to think about maybe in current terms, you know, as you have conversations with your investors and just general media and other pros, let's talk about all I got the pros is what do you believe right now that the vast majority of your friends don't. And it could be something that is either a specific investment or trade. It could be something that is more like philosophical speaking. Anything, uh, this may take a minute to think about. I believe quite strongly that we can have a recession, though it doesn't appear like we're having a recession. By you know, The data might be a little softer, but it doesn't seem particularly bad. I believe we could have a recession and the equity markets keep going up. I believe that the S&P, even though, you know, MAG7 is such a big piece of it, and I don't think MAG7 goes up much more, I think it can go up because, you know, there is no, there is no alternative. I mean, you're not going to buy tenure. You're not going to put it into money market. What are you going to do with your money? You don't really have any option. And as Louis said, uh, the government's going to be there to bail out the S&P because that's every voter's retirement account. And, you know, if, if the S&P has a down 20, no one gets reelected. That's how the policy system is set up. And, you know, if you have a recession, it means they print a ton of money and the S&P goes up. If you don't have a recession, retained earnings, they buy back all the stock, the S&P goes up. 
And if MAG7 goes down 30%, it goes back to, you know, an index, you know, multiple. Well, then oil stocks re-rate and industrials re-rate and, you know, cyclicals. There's all these sectors that are priced for a recession that never seems to come. And we're two years into this process where every month they say next month the recession is going to be here. And then the recession doesn't come. And the jobs data is fine. And maybe leading indicators are slightly worse. And there's always that one data set they drag out and they're like, look, look, it's happening, it's happening. But that doesn't really happen. I believe that no matter what happens, the equity market's just going higher. And I don't think most of my friends think that. I mean, most of my friends are, look, I'm running, over, I'm running 130 long right now. Like, and I'm kind of bearish, I guess. Wait, 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 hold on. Like, can you restate that statement and explain it for listeners? Because I feel like people are like, sipping their coffee would be like, hold on, did he just say he's 130 long and bearish? Yeah, I'm kind of bearish. I mean, the data is starting to get a little tarnished on the edges. But I mean, I'm long, you know, GDXJ or I'm, I'm long, you know, uranium. I'm, I'm long things that probably are counter cyclical. I don't have any consumer, put it that way. I don't have any of like the leading edge stuff, but we have a lot of industrials. And I mean, they're two and three times next year's cash flow. Some of them are one times, like, come hurt me. Take 30% of my EBITDA, you know, come hurt me. Like, I'm not that worried. I mean, if they hit the stock, there'll just be more buybacks. But I genuinely believe that, one, the economy is a lot stronger because everyone's looking at real data and not nominal data, which is why every corporate beat earnings in Q3. You know, they, they, on the revenue side, it was a little, you know, dicier. But on the earnings side, they were just fine. Because, you know, when you're running seven, eight nominal, well, yeah, of course, you should have 8% revenue growth. That's just, you know, treading water in a real world. And I, I just think equities going higher as a result of this. And like I said, if equities go down 20%, well, then you print money and equities go higher. I just look at my friends. A lot of them are sitting with a bunch of cash. A lot of them are short. A lot of them are running like, you know, 120, 80 or something where they're like uh, 40 net long. And they're just suffering. They've, they've been suffering for two years now. And they're, they're, I mean, their shorts are killing them. They're probably short mag seven and their longs at the same value stuff I own that never goes up. And no, they, I mean, everyone's suffering. And I feel like people are totally mispositioned for the world we're in, which is an inflationary, fiscally stimulative world. Kepi and I have very similar worldviews. Let me put it this way. My, my whole life has been the story of different economic zones integrating. So I grew up in France just when you know European Union was really getting going. Trade barriers were coming down. And the, the exciting story was the European Union. Then I moved to the U.S. for college in the early 90s. And that was you know NAFTA. And, and that was an exciting story. Then I moved to Hong Kong just as China was, uh, had, was about to join the WTO. And then for 15 years, we talked about Chin America. Now, everybody today talks about deglobalization, which to me is completely wrong. There is no deglobalization going. Global trade is still expanding. It's just that we're not part of it. It's not, it, you know, for the first time since Columbus sailed for the Americas, the Western world has nothing to do with the globalization. We're not doing the financing. We're not doing the logistics. We're not doing the capital tools, the machine tools. We're not doing any of it. All the growth in the world and trade is now happening emerging market to emerging markets. And I think people are missing it because they're looking in the emerging markets through the prism of China. Now, China has had a rough five years, but because it's had a big real estate boom and a big real estate bust. Having said that, in my career, every time you had a real estate bust, Southern Europe in 2011, US in 2008, Sweden in 1992, Japan in 1991, your economy imploded. Your banking system went belly up, your economy, unemployment went through the roof, et cetera. China's just gone through a, a big real estate contraction and the, they've kept the show on the road. Banks haven't gone bust, nobody's gone unemployed. It stayed okay. 
Now, still, China's been weak. We look at emerging markets through that prism. We need to look at it through another prism. And the prism is that you draw a line from Istanbul to Jakarta. It's 3.6 billion people with incomes growing by 5% a year and population growth by, by 1% a year. It's capital spending. It's every day that goes by a new free trade deal, a new railway, a new canal, a new road gets announced. I mentioned the 70 Indian airports, but it's the same story in Indonesia. It's the same story in Saudi Arabia. It's the same story in Turkey. Few people realize this, but since the bottom, you know, for all the talk about how the U.S., you mentioned international diversification doesn't work. Since the COVID bottom, Mexico and India have outperformed the U.S., Brazil, Indonesia, even Turkey. Everybody thinks Turkey's this big basket case. Turkey's done just as well in U.S. dollar terms in Turkish stocks as U.S. stocks. And in the past two years, Turkey has like crushed the United States uh, in U.S. dollar terms. So the new big story is the story of the Eurasian economic integration, is how from Turkey to Jakarta, you have one big economic axis with more trade, more infrastructure spending. And the question becomes, how do you play this? Do you play this through capital spending? Do you play this through the luxury goods? Do you play this through the commodities? Do you play this through the local banks, the local real estate? There's many ways to skin a cat. But that is the big macro trend, is the economic integration of the Eurasian continent. And I'm not sure, for all the talk about how you got to have all your money in the U.S., I'm not sure that the U.S. is actually, and U.S. companies are the best position to participate in this. Swedish companies, Japanese companies, Chinese companies are much better positions than American companies to participate in that growth. Listeners, if you want to hear more on Turkish stocks, we did an episode with Monish Pabrai where he talked at length about investing in Turkey, which I don't know if we've done elsewhere on this podcast before. So good to hear. Gentlemen, uh, we, we've been at this for a little bit and we've covered almost everything I could possibly think about. We've done little very disagreement, unfortunately. Is there anything else that is on your brain that we didn't get to? Let me bring up iron ore. That's the commodity that was supposed to roll over like 100 times in the last decade. And they just can't touch iron ore. It's bulletproof. It's like met coal, but it's even stronger. I mean, look, China was supposed to have all the steel it ever needs at the end of time. And iron ore doesn't have down ticks. I mean, I think that's telling you what's happening in the global economy. They keep building more uh, iron ore mines, keep exporting more. It doesn't matter the price, just bulletproof. I mean, copper, it's hanging in there in the high threes. Like, I think things are just really strong. And I, I, I think that's what uh, Louis is talking about. Three billion people that want stuff. I got a question for Louis. There's a ton of these companies that trade at one to three times cash flow globally. These aren't PICO caps, you know, billion plus market cap. A lot of them have double digit dividend yields, big buybacks. Yeah, they're clunky businesses. They're, you know, steel or they're iron ore or they're cooking coal or industrial something. They make gidgets. And these things have been cheap for the better part of a decade. They got super cheap during COVID. Like in 2022, they had like a bit of a revaluation period. And I was like, oh, it's happening. And then they just like deflated all, all 23. The money flowed out back into MAG7. What do you think it takes for these things to go up? I mean, economically, they're performing very well, but the share prices are just miserable. Is this just, you need a dollar to roll over? Do you need interest rates to roll over? What is it that finally wakes these things up? Because for the life of me, I don't get it. Either the dollar wakes these things up but you're right. You know, you've even seen, I'd add one more thing. You've started to see some industry M&A. You've started to see it in oil, right, with uh, the, the Pioneer deal. And the, uh, so you'd think, oh, okay, finally, this is going to bring it to life, but not even. So yeah, look, it's been a, a place of immense, immense frustration. 
that's the word frustration as my dad likes to put it it's funny but not amusing um it's, uh, <laughs> like like i wouldn't be upset look if the businesses were doing poorly I would say, yeah, that's, that's bad fundamental analysis. Yeah, I messed up. That's yeah, right. I, I messed but, up. But every quarter, they just keep plowing and the cash keeps coming in and no one cares. I mean, it, you know, one easy culprit is ESG. And you say, like, most people can't buy these things. So they can be given away in the street. People aren't going to pick them up, even if they were free, just because you can't be seen owning those things. And here... You know, there might be a change in the zeitgeist, just like, you know, in uranium, we've seen a change in the zeitgeist, you know, like five years ago, we were getting Chernobyl on HBO telling us that, you know, if you get my favorite part of Chernobyl, I don't know if you watched the series was the guy, you know, the farm and the heroic farm and you go in there, etc. are then kept in isolation because they're going to be contagious for radiate, radiation exposure, you know. And they're like their families are told you can't see them because you get contaminated as if radiation poisoning was contagious. So the public was massively against uranium, and that's shifted. It's shifted with 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 the Russian invasion of Ukraine. All of a sudden, people are like, actually, it's kind of nice to have your own power supply and not be dependent on anybody. And I highlight this because on ESG, I wonder if we're not going to start seeing that. It's going to it's slow moving, but initially the point of ESG was we told investors, look, you can't buy this. You can't buy any of it. And now what you're starting to see is, I think, a shift where people are like, okay, well, we actually do need copper and we do need iron ore and we do need all these things, but there are more or less green ways to produce it. So maybe BHP is a green producer. You know, they get all the, the right stamps of approval. And so therefore, like BHP, you can own in an ESG portfolio, but you can't own the Chinese one that pollutes the hell out of the sky or the, uh, the Korean one. And so the shift starts to move from you can't own any of them to actually let's try to be smarter about this and see how different things are produced. And I think there is time to see that shift in ESG. And perhaps that might help some of these guys, but maybe that's just me, you know, clasping at straws. I think it makes sense. Uh, the, the ESG stamp approval, you'll have a whole nother military industrial complex of stamps on stuff. Oh, for sure. I don't know. Governments will be very happy. It's like, oh yeah, let's do this. You know, jobs for the boys. I'll be head of the copper mining stamp and you can be the head of the iron ore stamp and maybe Meb, Meb can be the, the head of the nickel stamp. And we'll all need to build armies underneath us to, you know, stamp. And so governments are going to love this. I was getting into it as I often do. I love to poke CalPERS, the $400 billion plus pension plan <laughs> in my home state. And we wrote an article like a decade ago called, you know, should CalPERS be managed by a robot? We Then we did one on Harvard, largely both of those due to governance issues. And then Bridgewater, but like largely due to the challenges of just how hard it is on a global portfolio at scale of these guys. And, you know, CalPERS particularly triggered me yesterday because they wrote a job description, which I've applied for three times. They've had something like five CIOs in the past decade. And it's the most laughably like it, you got to make a documentary out of it at some point. But they're paying a consulting firm 300 grand to find the next CIO. And part of the attributes they're looking for are cultural competence, ability to effectively listen the ability to read the room, present in a way that doesn't cause a furor or that's insensitive to CalPERS culture. And the board would also like the new CIO to agree to receive mentorship. And I was like dying laughing. I'm like, what, like Scott Malpass or like the late great David Swinson. Can you imagine hiring one of these guys and then being like, you know, one of the things you're going to have to do, you're going to have to be mentored. You'd be like, by who? Like, by whom? Like, what? Like, 
Like unless it's Buffett or like I was you know, say, somebody... unless it's Warren Buffett or Howard Marks or Howard Marks, I'm not taking it. You need to separate the CIA role and like a press secretary role, which is what. The, but my goodness, dysfunctional. It's good that these uh, mandates exist because it's it creates alpha for guys like us to pick up off the street. It creates also and also a lot of uh, management fees for I think uh, our v- VC friends. They did something like. 0.5% on their venture capital portfolio the last 20 years, and then they've decided to triple it. They're like, we're so bad at this. We can't, we clearly can't be worse. It was the golden age of VC. Had they lose right, money? Right, right. How could you, you, you could have just picked a dart. The favor though was when they eliminated their entire tail risk portfolio the month before COVID started. It was like the absolute worst time in the history, maybe like the month before GFC rolled over. But anyway, they do it to themselves. So I don't feel sorry for them. Anything left? I got some more ideas, but I figure um, we've been boxing and dancing for a while. You guys probably rack up more frequent flyer miles than anyone I know. Do you have a favorite place on your 2024 travel list you're excited to uh, check out? Louis travels way more than I do. I got to be 183 days Puerto Rican. I don't know what you're talking about, Cuppy, because you got to start a separate Instagram account for your um, food travels. I give you credit for dining well. All right. Well, give me your hotspot next year. I'm off to Beijing, actually, uh, in a couple of days. I'm doing Beijing, Shanghai, and Hangzhou. So back in China, I have actually, I've been obviously uh, in Hong Kong a bunch. That's where my office is. But I haven't been back to the mainland since June. And when I was there in June, people were feeling very despondent. And the mood was very, very somber. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if that has changed a little bit. And that was regarding what? Well, regarding just the economy, regarding government policy, regarding pretty much everything. Now, what was interesting to me when I was in Beijing was, you know, everybody was super despondent, et cetera. And a couple of the people I met, I, you know, I asked, okay, and especially with the real estate outlook, and I'd say, okay, so, so what would it take for you to buy real estate? And a couple of times people were like, oh, I bought one last week. Because, and I said, oh, well, so you can't be that bad. He goes, oh, yeah, but I got a special deal. Yeah, it was like 20% off. And then, like, the mortgage rates are half the price, et cetera. I go, yeah, so, okay, the market's starting to clear. And then they were like, yeah, yeah, but that's okay. Like in Beijing and Shanghai, it'll clear, but there's like empty buildings, you know, in the middle of nowhere that will never clear, which to me sounded a lot like I remember in 2009 where people were saying, oh, there's all these empty condos in Florida, uh, Nevada, Arizona that will never be sold and we might as well turn them into chicken coops. And then you came back three years later and they were all occupied because, you know, prices go down and mortgage rates go down. And today, affordability in China is as good as it's ever been in 20 years. You know, prices have come down 30 percent, incomes have gone up 30 percent and mortgage rates have halved. So I'm very interested to, to see whether the despondency is still there or whether people are, are starting to pick up a little bit. Copy, where are you going? I think I'm going to Venezuela. I think I'm going to go check that out. I have a friend who has a property portfolio there. He's been very early in buying Venezuela. Uh, you know, I always thought it was a dangerous, kind of screwed up place, but he's still alive and it's been five years now. So I feel like, you know, it's time to go see. Well, I mean, let, let's be clear, listeners, this is coming from somebody who's lived in Mongolia and is now in Puerto Rico. You know, I'll give you this of the nearing on 400 investments I've done on uh, the startup world. My number one, very likely, it's certainly in the top three currently, was a Venezuela company. Just to go to show you can make money anywhere, but as a look around to the next few years, I've seen probably more interesting deals 
in emerging markets in the startup world than certainly in the US over probably the past three to five years. So let me know when you go. I've always wanted to go fish, uh, what is it, Los Roques off the coast. I'll let you know. You can come join. It's uh, Look, they're just opening up right now. So, Cuppy, I've, uh, I was just in Chile a few months ago, maybe two months ago, three months ago. And one of the guys I met there, big billionaire, I just bought the biggest Venezuelan insurance company for 17 million U.S. dollars. <laughs> is, is that good or bad? <laughs> well, I, I think the way he looked at it was it was a call option. And, you know, if you're worth bill, if you're worth billions and you can buy the biggest insurance company for 17 million bucks. Yeah, why not? I guess. And if you think you can probably turn it around in 10 years time, if Venezuela does any kind of economic readjustment, that thing could be worth a couple billions pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, the current guy is Maduro. He's trying capitalism because communism didn't work. And things are actually working there. I mean, from a super low base, but it hit absolute rock bottom about five years ago. And it's kind of on the way back up. And they might even have elections and someone else shows up. The one issue they have is all your sort of middle class, like your the guys who worked in petroleum engineers, and etc. They all left for Brazil and for Colombia. They'll, they'll go back. Most of them are in Miami now. Yeah, or Miami. But so they've, 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 no, the rich guys, the rich guys went to Miami. The poor guys went to Colombia and, and the middle class went to Colombia and Brazil. Yeah, they, they might come back. They might not. So you've, you've sort of hallowed out your talent pool. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to check it out. Maybe not in Bath. I don't know. No, no, it'll be interesting. I'd love to hear what you think. I'm looking forward to Cuppy holding a conference meetup in Rincon to where we can all uh, come visit. Yeah, let's go do this. So you've already come once and uh, enjoyed Rincon. I'm inviting Louis like five times now. I'll make it because I've got my sister lives in Puerto Rico. So I got to make it down anyway. Make sure you come before it gets too hot. Before May. We'll get West to get all the quant nerds. Good, let's do it. Gentlemen, it's been a wide-reaching conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Where do people go to find out more info on you guys if they don't already? Start with Louis. To our website, which is uh, gafcal.com, G-A-V-E-K-A-L.com. And for me, go to praycap.com. I got a blog there. It, it, it's free, so you get what you pay for. And if you like memes, uh, go to at each cuppy on Twitter. Perfect. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to see you guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.